Hello, and welcome to the Sunday School Supplement. I'm Amber Lee. I'm Kendall. And this week, we are studying 2 Nephi 6 through 10. But first, we want to apologize for not having an episode out last week. We recorded an episode, but the week was crazy. Uh, We had a lot of sickness going around in our house, and the week before we had more sickness. (laughs) But everyone is pretty well recouped. So last week we recorded, but I didn't get around to editing it um, in the timely manner that I wanted to. So the solution that we have is that we're going to put this episode out so that you have an episode on time for this week's study. And then sometime in the future, I will upload that as a bonus rewind episode. Coming to podcasts near you, eventually, TM. Yep, exactly. (laughs) And since our overarching goal for this project is really just to be studying together I was going to say we accomplished half, but I feel like we accomplished more than half of what our actual goal was for last week. We accomplished our goal. It just didn't benefit anyone else this time. Yeah. So I will, I will get on that. And uh, I sincerely apologize for not having it out, but thank you for coming back and listening to this episode, even though we were gone for a week. If we were more cynical people, it's at this point that we would probably be, you know, bemoaning algorithm something something all right so with all of that said in this week's chapters a short summary is that jacob teaches the people of nephi this is our uh, first taste of consecutive isaiah chapters we've had we've had a an appetizer this is the second appetizer i guess you could say because we haven't gotten to the big body of them yet but As always, one of the wonderful, wonderful things about studying Isaiah in the context of the Book of Mormon is that you then get Nephi or Jacob or whoever after the fact saying, and here's why I just read you those chapters from Isaiah, and here's how it applies to you, my people. And that makes it that much easier for us in our modern day to say, hmm, I bet this can apply to me too. As I was reading, I know that I have complained in previous weeks about getting to the Isaiah chapters. But as I was reading these chapters this week, I was like, oh, I think I feel like this every time, but this was not as bad as I was expecting, which, which sounds bad. I don't necessarily mean that they're bad. I just mean that they're hard. This wasn't as hard as I was expecting is probably a better way to put that. It certainly helps when it comes with its own personalized study guide built in directly after the fact. So For sure. Well, and I was telling Kendall, I was kind of facepalming this week because I have some Book of Mormon action figures that you can get at like Deseret Book, you know, and I have always wondered why Jacob's action figure, but I haven't necessarily always wondered. I have always noticed that everyone else is in like an action pose and then you have jacob here who is standing at a podium with a book and i've always said to myself like why is this the way that this is and this week was like my duh amberly this is his like big thing (laughs) is him being called as a teacher to the nephites I think this week is probably going to be the first week that we're not just going to read the uh, intro paragraph of the Come Follow Me section verbatim. As we've done previous weeks, we might pick out just a sentence or two. The summary of it is really just that the big and the big emphasis in these chapters, Jacob is trying to under get his people to understand God has not forgotten you like we may have left Jerusalem, but we are still of the covenant of Abraham and of the house of Israel And God has not forgotten you, so by golly, don't forget him. For sure. Another thing that I want to highlight is that, again, we have mention of uh, how long it's been and Lehi's family and and all of this, that, and the other. And it has always been emphasized to me in my life um, growing up, whether that's in seminary or on my mission or just in church in general, to read the Book of Mormon with a question in mind or with a theme in mind. And this opening Come Follow Me heading is poignant to me. We're two months in and the church curriculum has made it very clear 
you should be focusing on family this year as you're reading the Book of Mormon. At least that's what I've been getting out of it. And it's been a really interesting way to read the Book of Mormon for me to come at it with this approach of this is a family story that we're reading about. I know I've said that maybe every week now, but it still is just so poignant, even with these Isaiah chapters, that Jacob is just... You're of the family of Abraham. Yeah, we're of the family of Abraham. This is, I mean, in in the Come Follow Me heading, just like what Kendall was saying, his his overarching theme in chapters 6 through 10 is we're God's covenant people. God's not going to leave us alone. And then quoting in chapter 10, I really love this ending. Therefore, Jacob concluded, cheer up your hearts. So I think that's just a good emphasis moment. Cheer up your hearts. That is this week's Isaiah chapters. The end. No. Well, and there's, I mean, I highlighted this as slight spoilers, but um, he says, cheer up your hearts right after he said, hey, I wish I could be talking to you about other things, but I have to talk to you about the fact that you guys have been kind of wicked lately. Uh, so stop doing that. Oh, and by the way, cheer up your hearts. That's obviously being slightly facetious in how I paraphrase that, but the context does actually help us get a lot of insight into how to approach repentance, how to approach prophecy and responsibility. So we'll get into that as we dive into the chapters. For sure. The the atonement is supposed to be a joyful thing. And I think that's what Jacob is really getting at in these chapters. Those were the feelings that I was getting. This week, for me, was a lot of usually... I have my physical copy of the Book of Mormon, and I'm highlighting it with all of my colored pencils. This week, I was driving around a lot, and so a lot of my study this week was on the go listening in the Gospel Library app, which I'm super grateful for, but that also means that my highlights are a little bit more sparse than usual. So I'm going off of the vibes that I had this week. <laughs> Don't worry, I'm as long-winded as ever. Perfect. That's that's what I uh, look forward to and expect from our joint scripture study. So where do you want to take us first, Kendall? Um, well, so we're starting chapter six. Uh, I have a highlight here even in just verse two. So this is, I mean, chapter introduces it saying, this is Jacob, the brother of Nephi, speaking to the people of Nephi. We don't know if this was like only a certain group or if this was like some general epistle that went out to all of the people. We don't really know how many people there are at this point. It's now been, as the study guide said, at least 40 years. So enough time for a couple generations, but probably not so many that you've started losing track of people. Well, and they've split up Lamanites, so it's just their little section of people. Right. So who knows what the exact audience is here, but the part I have highlighted is the last little part of the verse says, Behold, ye know that I have spoken unto you exceedingly many things. One, I get the uh, impression Jacob might be a tad bit exasperated with his people at the moment, but it was a nice reminder to me that this is just what we have recorded. Who knows how many times Jacob has had to reiterate certain lessons much like we get our lessons reiterated to us ad nauseum today, I think one of the reasons that modern prophets are so important is so that we never get too used to what's in the scriptures and too good at just kind of philosophizing the actual lessons of the scriptures away. I think that was one of the major... So let me say it this way. I think that the Catholic and Eastern Orthodox churches that sprang out of Christ's ministry and the ministry of the apostles immediately thereafter did a phenomenal job of preserving the scriptures and getting them to us in the modern day. But one of the downsides of being solely reliant on scriptural record and not having, you know, priesthood authority to truly act and speak in the name of God is that you're then left with just endless amounts of opinions and interpretations on the same passages of Scripture as Joseph Smith bemoaned in his own history. And it got really easy for those in power to justify actions that were pretty blatantly against the spirit of the Scripture by just, you know, mixing in philosophies of men. 
And that's easy to do when all it is is just dead prophets speaking through scripture. Having someone actually there to preach to you, no matter what the message is, really helps prevent that. It kind of, you know, keeps the rest of us honest, so to speak. For sure. If you just go up a little bit in verse two, it's talking about exactly what you are just highlighting of I, Jacob, have been called of God and ordained after the manner of this holy order and have been consecrated by my brother Nephi. So he is going through and giving the, I mean, it's not a very long lineage of his priesthood, but he's giving that and he's like, this is important to have. He's starting out with his credentials. Like, this is why you should listen to me. I mean, and that's one of the great things we keep a record of that in the church too for all of the men like these are my credentials of where i got the priesthood and going back to anyways uh you know what i'm saying <laughs> for sure no 100 percent. i think that it is extremely significant and something we don't really talk about a whole lot that every single priesthood holder in the church can trace their priesthood line of authority directly back to jesus christ for both aaronic and melchizedek priesthood pretty fancy it's very fancy. So my next highlight that I have is down in verse five. Sweet. Go for it. Awesome. So th this is a riff on an, something that Nephi has preached to us already. Jacob's saying, I'm going to quote Isaiah to you guys. Isaiah is talking to the house of Israel. And guess what? They may be likened unto you for year of the house of Israel. And literally all I wrote was, hey, so am I. And actually that comes up. In the next verse, in verse 6, so he's now quoting Isaiah, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up mine hand to the Gentiles, and set up my standard to the people, and they shall bring thy sons in their arms, and thy daughters shall be carried upon their shoulders. And I highlighted that phrase, set up my standard to the people. So I mentioned we are of the house of Israel. We totally are. But the overwhelming majority of us are adopted in, at least, I guess, depending on where exactly in the world you come from, but assuming we're mostly dealing with friends and neighbors here in this podcast, the majority of us are adopted into the house of Israel. And so we are also, in fact, the Gentiles that God has raised up to be a standard to the world. When we think of standards and like what a standard is, I know that here he's referencing specifically like a flag. That's kind of what the word standard here means. But related meaning is also what we generally think of as standards in the, the modern use of the word, which generally I feel like we usually default to thinking of a list of thou shalts and thou shalt nots, which are important. But what about the standard of our own conduct? What about the day-to-day -day interactions we have with siblings, parents, kids, friends, coworkers, and strangers too. I personally think one of Christ's biggest lessons from his life was the way that he treated people more than any specific doctrinal sermon. He followed all of the explicit standards of the law of Moses at the time, but he also set a new standard for treating people as we all hope to be treated. And so when I just read that of setting up my standard to the people, how good of a standard are we being? Again, trying to liken scriptures unto ourselves. What kind of a standard are we being to other people? Are we really lifting people's sons and daughters up on our shoulders, so to speak, and helping carry them to their home with Christ and with our Heavenly Father? I love that. And then towards the end of verse 7, where it says, For they shall not be ashamed that wait for me. It makes me think of like waiting for that adoption and granted you and I were born into the church and were raised here. So that adoption was not far off. But I'm just thinking about that and thinking of kind of going out into the weeds into left field for just a second. Just the aspect of waiting on the Lord. And I think that sometimes we can get really impatient. <laughs> At least I can with waiting on answers and just waiting on waiting on the Lord in general. And this is kind of a to me, uh, hold your horses, calm down. It's all gonna work out. I think I don't know. That's what I'm feeling from that. Absolutely. And I mean, there's having that patience to be able to not only wait for our own eternal rewards, but having that patience with other people. Sometimes we have to wait on the Lord's timing when it does come to inviting others to come unto him. And it doesn't matter. So whether where in the world you come from or what your upbringing has been, 
There is no maximum capacity in the Celestial Kingdom. Everyone gets to come if we can be patient, know that God is God, and that he will ensure that everyone has a chance to make and keep those sacred covenants, which also get talked about later in coming chapters. So, Amen. Um, my next highlight is in verse 11. Jacob is now interpreting Isaiah. He's mentioning, okay, I've had visions that those in Jerusalem have been carried off and that the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, will come to Jerusalem and the people there will scourge him, persecute him, and kill him. And because of this, they shall be driven. So in verse 11, wherefore, after they are driven to and fro, referring to the people who persecuted the Savior, for thus saith the angel, many shall be afflicted in the flesh. And this is interesting. We would probably say but, but here he's saying, and shall not be suffered to perish because of the prayers of the faithful. And that just stuck out to me. This is not the only time in the Book of Mormon that the phrase because of the prayers of the faithful or something very close to it is used when it comes to God, you know, staying his justice. We see that example later in the city of Ammonihah, I want to say, with Alma and Amulek after the wicked judges of the city are like, you know, throwing righteous people into a literal fire just to spite Alma and Amulek. And then Alma and Amulek, you know, shake the prison down and leave. But uh, that city gets destroyed because the wicked people of the city destroyed all the righteous people whose prayers were staving off God's judgments. We see that with Jonah preaching to Nineveh. We see that with Abraham, you know, negotiating with God about Sodom and Gomorrah. There's a lot of instances of it in the scriptures. And it just really goes to show that no individual effort of righteousness is ever wasted. Even if you feel like you are having no, none of your missionary efforts are paying off and like you're not, you don't feel like you're really having a righteous impact on your community despite your best efforts. Just know that there is no individual effort of righteousness that is ever unnoticed or that is ever wasted. I really love that. I think that's a message that gets talked about, but I feel like I don't let it, I don't allow myself to let it sink in as much as I should, (laughs) that my individual efforts and I mean, and yours, but I'm, I'm thinking of my, I'm thinking of myself at the moment. (laughs) At the end of the day, that's the only person you can really control. Exactly. And so thinking about like my individual efforts and just, I mean, as we alluded to a little bit at the beginning of this podcast, it's been a like mildly rough two weeks here at the Bean House. And I don't know, just thinking about the like small steps, just doing the next right thing and putting that foot forward is not overlooked by the Lord. I mean, we'll talk about the atonement in in just a little bit too, but just thinking of that on top of it as well is really really good for me to be to be focusing on this week especially (laughs) it's a very validating lesson to learn my next comment i want to make was in verse 13 so here so again this is jacob interpreting things i found this very interesting maybe you're all probably just going to fall asleep at this i don't know but in the verses of isaiah that he quotes in verse 6 God is setting up the Gentiles to be a standard to his people, sons and daughters getting carried upon shoulders, and kings shall be their nursing fathers, and queens shall be their nursing mothers. They shall bow down to thee with their faces towards the earth and lick up the dust of thy feet. That's all kind of just one contiguous thought. There's no differentiation between the people being the standard, the kings and queens doing the nursing, and the people bowing down and licking up the dust of God's people's feet. But here in verse 13, Jacob is saying, Wherefore, they that fight against Zion and the covenant people of the Lord shall lick up the dust of their feet, and the people of the Lord shall be not ashamed. In verse 12, so the verse before that, Jacob's saying, Oh, and blessed are the Gentiles, they of whom the prophet has written. For behold, they that repent and fight not against Zion will fulfill his covenants. Again, just kind of paraphrasing that there. So even though in the scriptures that he's quoting here, there is no differentiation between the two groups. It kind of makes it sound like the people who are, you know, doing all this raising up of God's people are also going to be bowing down and licking the dust. That seems a little incongruous. But 
Jacob here is interpreting that, oh, there are two separate groups of Gentiles we're talking about here. There's those that are repent and fight not against Zion, and then there are those that do fight against Zion and the covenant people of the Lord. And it was, again, just interesting for me to think it's like, okay, not all insights are discernible strictly from scriptural text. And this is kind of relating to what I talked about at the start of the chapter. I am so grateful, and not just grateful, it is necessary for us to have living prophets, people with authority to receive revelatory interpretation of the scriptures. Otherwise, we would not get the messages we need out of the scriptures. We believe that the Bible and the Book of Mormon together contain the fullness of the everlasting gospel, but I don't think we would be able to access that fullness without the interpretation of inspired and authorized servants of the Lord. It really hit it home to me, so... I love that. And especially with General Conference coming up, I mean, I know we're a month away still, but it is no secret here that I am a big fan of General Conference talks. I mean, I don't think we're necessarily at a point yet where I'm going to talk about my uh, conference talk of the week, but just the insights and interpretations from getting to hear from the prophets of the Lord every six months is like you already said, one of those things that sets us apart that is so lovely and refreshing. For sure. It's also never too early to start planning your conference parties. I mean, there are a few snacks and various things that I 100% need when we're watching conference. And Kendall knows I am a very food forward type of person. <laughs> I just consider it that there are, you know, some traditions of the fathers that are not necessarily wicked, even if they're not necessarily necessary either. <laughs> it's necessary to sustain yourself through 10 hours of listening to the voice and will of the Lord. <laughs> true, true. As we all know, revelation can be an exhausting experience. Loaves and fishes, you know. All that good stuff. <laughs> My next comments are in chapter 7. I didn't have anything else for 6. Awesome. Let's go on to chapter seven. Sweet. So one of the uh, interesting, I'm trying, reading through the Isaiah chapters, and really just the Book of Mormon in general, one of my focuses has been on really making sure I understand the context in which something is being preached. And in the case of these Isaiah chapters, the framing that Isaiah is using for these revelations. So in this case, quoting Isaiah, we're saying, Yea, for thus saith the Lord, this is just verse 1, Have I put thee away, or have I cast thee off forever? For thus saith the Lord, Where is the bill of your mother's divorcement? To whom have I put thee away, or to which of my creditors have I sold you? Yea, to whom have I sold you? Behold, for your iniquities have ye sold yourselves, and for your transgressions is your mother put away. So these next two chapters are going to be framed in the language and context of breaking the marriage covenant. And the marriage covenant gets used extremely often in the scripture to represent the covenant between God and his people. And we, of course, know the marriage covenant to be the single most significant covenant we can make in mortality. And so it's definitely by design that it gets used so much to represent the ultimate covenant that we all have both individually and as a people with our Heavenly Father. So just keep that in mind as we're reading these next two chapters. In verse 2, the phrase I have highlighted is, O house of Israel, is my hand shortened at all that I cannot redeem, or have I no power to deliver? And again, this being framed in the idea of, okay, the house of Israel, and by extension all of us, we have broken that marriage covenant with God, and God is asking us back after this has happened, do I not still have the power to redeem you? Like, can we not make this better? Do you think that I'm incapable of helping you come back from this? And that got me thinking, okay, our covenants are not just, they're not contracts. It's not like, okay, you do this and I will pay you in blessings. Our covenants are our direct connection with the Lord. That's one of the reasons why they are so necessary and why we can't just, you know, be religious in our own terms. Like, we need to have these formal covenants because they are our direct connection with our Heavenly Father, 
it is through the power of those covenants that he can really pull us back and redeem us, that we always kind of have that that lifeline to him. And that, I, I don't know, that just stood out to me, um, again, as I was reading this in the context of Israel having broken a covenant. Just thinking, I know you just essentially said this, but just thinking of how we are bound by our covenants, but then just what you were just saying of emphasizing that the Lord is also bound by the covenants that we make with him. I feel like we in the church sometimes talk about covenants being contracts, like you were just saying, and thinking of a contract in like the way that we know contracts in a temporal sense it makes it feel like almost flat. Whereas when you start to like strive to understand and really adopt the covenants that you've made with the Lord, I feel like it helps expand that to this is Heavenly Father trying to give us the best chance that we can have. Like rather than a contract, this is like a trust fund that he's like, this is what you need to do to be able to have all of this. Well, and just remember, no matter how spiritually inspired and committed we feel in the moments that we make covenants with God, he is more committed to us. Like when we make those covenants, his commitment to us is much greater than our commitment to him. And so again, using the framing device, he is more committed to saving the marriage, so to speak, than even we are. So, yeah, absolutely. How much of a blessing is that to have such a loving Heavenly Father and such a, I mean, also just thinking of Jesus Christ. You cannot grasp the love that they have for us, but learning and reading in the scriptures like we're doing starts giving you a little bit of a peek. I'm sure we can, you can get a pretty good idea through experience, but yeah, it's, man, the magnitude of it is, it's, it's amazing. Every time, every time you really sit and ponder it, it's just amazing all over again. My next highlight is in verse four. So here in verse four, Isaiah is now no longer kind of talking in the place of the Lord. He is now talking as a servant of the Lord. And the phrase that stood out to me is, he said, when ye are weary, he waketh morning by morning. He waketh mine ear to hear as the learned. This just stood out to me, the fact that God is willing to work with us a day at a time and at kind of our own pace. Hopefully we, we learn to trust God enough to trust his pace for us. Sometimes we feel like we should be learning a lot faster than we are. Sometimes we're like, okay, turn down the fire hose, please, God, please. <laughs> um, but regardless of what direction, I-, I hope that we can all come to accept God's timing in things. But even if we are having trouble with that, I think that God is more than willing to work with us at our own pace as well. And this is especially true for people who are not yet members of the church and are really trying to learn what it means to make these covenants and what it means to take that commitment on themselves. I don't think we should, for those of us who are in the church and who are trying to reach out and invite others to to make those covenants with God, we should definitely remember God's working with these people in his own time. Morning by morning, day by day, uh, he he wakes up with us and he walks with us the whole way there. Just be patient with ourselves and each other. But I'm going to jump down to verse seven here. Um, sorry, Amberly, this is all kind of part of one continuous thought. It's awesome. I was actually just thinking that your thought goes perfectly with verse seven. So <laughs> go. <for it. laughs> this is all great advice for those that, like you know are, we're working with and we all want to learn of God and come to Him. Verse 5, he says, And I was not rebellious, neither turned away back. But then we get to the smiters, the people who are shaming us. There will be those as well in the world. And the last sentence of verse 7, Therefore have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. And boy, howdy, when you look at like news articles or shows these days or anything in social media, a lot of it is really focused on shaming, like shaming people in other parties, in other situations of life. There's the whole, I mean, I'm sure we've all heard of like mom shaming or whatever. There's, well, but it's a, it's a, Amberly chuckled. I don't know if her mic picked that up, but like, it's a real thing. There is so much judgment in modern society because our lives are so open on the internet. And so with how omnipresent shaming is, I think it's, 
very important to point out that God can absolutely give us the strength to not be affected by shame trying to be sent our way, whether it's from media at large or whether it's from other people in the church, because that's probably one of the more frequent sources of it for those of us who are active in our wards and stakes is well-meaning people will try and shame each other into acting in the way that they think is right. And so, like, let's try and see the good in people, but at the same time, we don't need to let their shame affect our own desire to be faithful or our own relationship with our Heavenly Father. For sure. So I'm going to read the other part of verse (laughs) 7. It's just the very beginning of it where it says, For the Lord God will help me, therefore shall I not be confounded. And... I mean, we already highlighted the Lord's going to help us, but just grasping onto that word confounded with what you were just talking about, I feel like we can get so wrapped up and so overwhelmed by the shame that we are just prone to absorbing from people on the internet or people in our lives that we can get confounded and a little bit lost in that and kind of forget, not to say forget the Lord, but forget that the atonement is there for us. I don't know. Does that make sense? (laughs) Absolutely. It can get so confusing because people present these arguments that on the face of them are very sound as for why, I don't know, like I'm, I wouldn't say I'm a terminal Reddit user, but uh, I do browse more often than I should. And uh, semi-regularly you come across like, you know, threads that are about arguments on why religion is generally a bad thing and yada yada i'm not going to act like everyone hates religion in the world but it's not a small number either and there are some very good arguments against it there are again on the surface sound arguments against specifically the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints there may be sound arguments against why you have what job you have like who knows what it is i I don't know but god can absolutely help us not to be confounded there are resources out there for us to access and most importantly there is the confirmation of the spirit when something is true or correct that is the ultimate source of truth and no rhetorical argument is going to ever be able to take that away from us we have to remember that humans are spiritual beings as well my grandparents have a little card that has a quote i love that says i forget the exact quote but essentially it's humans are not physical creatures having spiritual experiences we are spiritual creatures currently having a physical experience and that's something that a lot of people discount but we absolutely shouldn't I'm going to go ahead and move over to chapter 8, if that's all right with you. Sounds great. Here in verse 2, so this is again God calling to his people, asking them to, you know, get the correct perspective on things. Verse 2, he says, Look unto Abraham your father, and unto Sarah she that bare you, for I called him alone and blessed him. I would just like to point out that we know, thanks to the Pearl of Great Price, Abraham was seeking the blessings of his fathers all the way back up to Adam, who Adam received covenants from God regarding his redemption and salvation, and Eve as well. And so the people of Israel and the seed of Abraham are a blessed and chosen people, but they are blessed based on the same blessings given to the father and mother of all mankind. And those blessings and covenants are available to all who will accept the Lord's will. And that's backed up by what Jacob was saying about the earlier Isaiah chapters as well. I'm just going to kind of keep going, and I just need you to, like, smack me in the back of the head when you want me to stop. Sounds good. I'll just interrupt you. Okay. If you move down to verse 6, again, going on to uh, God trying to get us to change our perspective on things, lift up your eyes to the heaven and look upon the earth beneath, for the heavens shall vanish away like smoke, and the earth shall wax old like a garment, and they that dwell therein shall die in like manner. But my salvation shall be forever, and my righteousness shall not be abolished. And this, I don't know why, but this, and this probably isn't like the intended interpretation of it, but it made me think of the 10th article of faith, this phrase that the earth shall wax old. Um, In the 10th article of faith, we state that we believe that the earth will eventually receive its paradisiacal glory. But here, Isaiah is saying, the earth shall pass away, just like we, who dwell upon it, shall also pass away. But... Because of Christ's eternal redemption, we will be renewed. 
just as the earth will be renewed. And to any out there who feel that they've squandered too much of their lives, not doing what's right, or just feeling the effects of waxing old as the earth does, remember that Christ's redemption is eternal. Don't procrastinate the days of your repentance, but remember that you can repent of that procrastination too. Let's be excited for growing old and advancing one more step in the plan. There is a lot here. I'm not going to go through every single verse. I'm actually going to jump down all the way to verse 24 to really, really summarize everything here. Again, keeping the framing device in our heads of God is saying the house of Israel has broken their covenant, but because of that covenant, he can bring us back. He is saying, have I not done all these great things in Egypt? I am he that comforteth you. I made the heavens and the earth. Can I not, you know, turn away your oppressors? All of these things he's saying, I will, and I'll I'll read. So verse 24, at the very end, he's saying, awake, awake, put on thy strength, O Zion, put on thy beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for henceforth there shall no more come into thee the uncircumcised and the unclean. This very famous verse is the culmination of God's reassurances to his people. And so if we, having read these last couple chapters, while keeping in mind the fact that God is framing this revelation as a marital relationship that has been sullied through Israel or our infidelity, then this excess of assurances takes on a new light, at least to me. God assures us that though we may have to drink the dregs of the cup of his fury, which I personally think can be rephrased as the dregs of the cup of natural consequences of our actions, he will still fight for us, he will still send his servants to us, he still pleads for us, and most of all, he will never forget us. Even when we have hurt him through a betrayal of the covenant, He is promising that those with a contrite spirit of repentance will be able to arise and put on our beautiful garment, which, again, at least to me, signifies that wholeness of our covenant relationship with God as though no betrayal had ever occurred. It's really, this is, man, these two chapters are just a, a crescendo of we start at the bottom with broken covenants and God takes us through all the reasons why he can make it better. He does not discount the fact that there are consequences to our actions, but he never gives up. He never gives up on Israel. He never gives up on us, no matter what. Well, and this is just the preface, at least for me, going into chapter nine, because chapter nine is like I have in this older set of scriptures that I'm reading in today, I have a sub-sub heading. I don't know what you would say here, But the heart of the Book of Mormon is what I have written for chapter nine, because it really is like it's such an emphasis of what the gist of the Book of Mormon wants us to know. Absolutely. And and like Amberly just said, I absolutely agree. This really is all just my interpretations are really just teeing up Jacob's interpretations in the coming chapter. So we can move on to that. So chapter nine, Jacob is saying, all right. I read you these things so that you can know concerning the covenant that the Lord made with the house of Israel. And he says in verse 3, Behold, my beloved brethren, I speak unto you these things that ye may rejoice and lift up your heads forever because of the blessings which the Lord God shall bestow upon your children. For I know, and this is verse 4, For I know that ye have searched much, many of you, to know the things to come. And this will be interesting when we get a little later into the chapter 2, but... Right now, Jacob is addressing an audience who is seeking revelation. So he is speaking of the covenants and of prophecy. Uh, he will also speak of the consequence of you know, breaking those covenants, because he does say later in this chapter that, would I harrow up your souls to repentance if your minds were pure? No, but your minds are not pure, so this is what I have to talk about. So this is not a sinless audience, but at the very least, they are seeking some revelation. And as we'll see in later chapters, Jacob will just absolutely lay into his people for some very heinous stuff eventually. But I personally would like to let the prophets focus on the revelatory, explanatory, mysteries of the kingdom type of uh, sermons, as opposed to the fire and brimstone, you really need to repent types of sermons. And which ones we get really are dependent on us. For sure. What do you got? I've been blathering forever. 
So I didn't necessarily say this at the beginning. One of the things that I am recovering from still a little bit this week is my throat is not at the top of its game. So you'll have to bear with me is essentially what I'm saying. (laughs) Taking a step away from the scriptures real quick for everyone's favorite segment, (laughs) or at least one of my favorite segments of Amberly's favorite conference talk of the week is a conference talk from Elder D. Todd Christofferson from October of 2019. And it's called The Joy of the Saints. And so this is going a little bit forward, uh, jumping ahead from Come Follow Me. But this one quote just fits this whole lesson, honestly. And the whole talk is amazing. I am taking a quote that is quoted in the talk. (laughs) For my highlight of the talk this week, it is President Nelson saying, the joy we feel has little to do with the circumstances of our lives and everything to do with the focus of our lives. And I think that that's just so good for this week's reading because Jacob is talking to his people and he's like, what? Essentially, I feel like this can all be boiled down to, guys, what are you focusing on? Whether we're talking about the marriage covenant, like like Kendall was emphasizing. I mean, really, it's Jacob emphasizing, but Kendall pointing out that Jacob is emphasizing, as well as like getting into this heart of the Book of Mormon in chapter 9, and then going into chapter 10 as well. The focus of our lives is really what matters here. What everything boils down to is what is going to matter most in the end. And then also... On top of that, if you're focusing on the right thing, aka the gospel of Jesus Christ, then you will have joy. And isn't that a super nice byproduct of doing the right thing? (laughs) Absolutely. Well, yeah. And I mean, Jacob's really trying to remind his people, you are still God's covenant people. Like just because we cross an ocean, that doesn't change anything. So yeah, he's absolutely trying to get them to focus on, on those covenants, on their relationship with with God the Father. So 100%. I'm going to jump to verse 6 here. I'll just read the first part. For as death hath passed upon all men to fulfill the merciful plan of the great creator, there must needs be a power of resurrection, and the resurrection must needs come unto man by reason of the fall. And the fall came by reason of transgression, and because man became fallen, they were cut off from the presence of the Lord. This interpretation of what of what we just read with Isaiah is something we kind of take for granted in the church. Jacob got these insights from reading Isaiah, and with our own knowledge, it's not too much of a stretch to see where he's coming from, but it's really a good illustration of the difference in studying the scriptures from a sound foundation of revealed doctrine versus centuries of philosophizing and well-intentioned but ultimately uninspired conjecture on the interpretation of these scriptures, because I don't know personally of any other Christian denomination that interprets, I don't know about those specific passages of Isaiah, but just believes in the doctrine that the fall was planned and necessary. So in order to fulfill the plan of the creator, we have to be able to die. Like I'm fairly certain most other Christian denominations believe that, you know, Jesus Christ was kind of the backup plan when Adam screwed up in the garden. And it's like, oh, crap, you're all supposed to be, you know, immortal and happy forever in the Garden of Eden. And then Adam and Eve decided to go and break the one rule I gave them. And so now I've got to send my perfect son to make up for their screw up is the very, very uh, non-nuanced take of how I understand most other Christians to to understand that particular doctrine. But if you have the correct revealed foundation, then it's actually pretty obvious what is happening here in Isaiah, what's being hinted at and implied. And Jacob affirms that. So just yet another instance of, wow, I'm sure glad that we have prophets to help us interpret these scriptures. For sure. Well, and I think when you really ponder and think on that, having Jesus Christ as a backup plan, which I think that not that we fall into that, but I think sometimes we can when you're first learning about Adam and Eve in the garden, like this was a, oh, dang it kind of thing. And it almost like cheapens the atonement thinking of it in that light, not to, not to skip ahead too much, but you get into like these like verse eight, 
Oh, the wisdom of God and his mercy. And verse 10, oh, how great the goodness of our God. And verse 13, oh, how great the plan of our God. There's a lot of O's. <laughs> Jacob's really excited here. And I mean, and what what is there not to be excited for is kind of the thing. It It really is so exciting and so... What's the opposite of cheapening the atonement? Enriching. Yes. It's so enriching <laughs> to to think about the atonement and to think about Jesus Christ in this light. Like this chapter is truly the emphasis of another testament of Jesus Christ. Like, look how cool this was, guys. Look how cool, not was, but like how cool it is that we have this plan. Everything is going according to plan. Yeah. Like, we are not on plan B. There is no plan B because there's no necessity for a plan B. Absolutely. No, that's, and it really is this, this whole chapter. Jacob is so excited <laughs> to be preaching of how awesome it is that we can all repent. And I think that's, I'm, I'm skipping like four highlights I have here because this just goes so great with what we're talking about. For sure. And we're running, we're running close on time probably too. Don't worry. I don't actually have any highlights in chapter 10. Um, Jacob does a great job explaining more interpretations of Isaiah and I didn't really have anything too spicy to add to any of it. But here in verse 47, I'll just read it. Jacob saying, but behold, my brethren, is it expedient that I should awake you to an awful reality of these things? Would I harrow up your souls if your minds were pure? Would I be plain unto you according to the plainness of the truth if you were freed from sin? So he's saying like, guys, I'm preaching the awesomeness of repentance and of the atonement because you need repentance and the atonement right now. I, again, juxtapose that with the very start of the chapter where he says, okay, many of you have been earnestly seeking revelation on these things. Well, I, I think we can reconcile the two things. He hasn't changed audiences. So even if we are seeking revelations on things to come, we ought to prioritize cleansing ourselves. Obviously, no one is perfect in mortality, and we should continuously be seeking to do the Lord's will and to know the Lord's will, but let's make sure that we are constantly and actively trying to repent every day. Let's be as excited about the atonement as Jacob is in this chapter. I had some other thoughts on 16 where he says, they that are righteous shall be righteous still, and they who are filthy shall be filthy still, talking about when we pass away and, you know, are now spirits in the eternal world, um, or sorry, and it is his eternal word, that which cannot pass away. So we have eternal spirits, they're going to be the same when we die as they are now. So let's let's train ourselves up and not just rely on grace. Let's let's put some work into it ourselves, even though it's only by grace that we obviously get anywhere. And then real quick in verse 26, again, this is being excited about the atonement. Jacob says, For the atonement satisfieth the demands of his justice upon all those who have not the law given to them. And it reminded me, I don't know how many of you have listened to C.S. Lewis's wonderful little series of vignettes called the screw tape letters in which uh it is written in the perspective of a demon's uncle writing letters to his nephew on how to effectively tempt people and one of the things that he says is one of the monstrously unfair things that the enemy does is he gives them credit just for trying even if they get it completely wrong and and it's so true. Like, it really seems kind of unfair for Satan, doesn't it? God gives equal credit to those doing the best they can with the light of Christ that they have, as he does to those of us who've grown up in the gospel and know all we need to do by authoritative revelation. God will make sure everyone gets the chance to make the proper covenants. There is only one path. Jacob says that in chapter 10 as well. But everyone gets credit for trying with where they're at. Amen. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah. Sorry. This, I'm like the amount that is here. <laughs> and so much of it is so like, I don't say it's just like self-explanatory, but it's so awesome that Jacob earlier Nephi did it. And now Jacob's doing it. They were like sitting here and in just interpreting the scriptures for us. So straightforward that it is, I mean, yes, still have the spirit of discernment with you as you are reading your scriptures. But I think you could read these half asleep and still feel the spirit and get what Jacob is trying to get for his point. 
there's a reason that the church considers the Book of Mormon to be the best entry point into our scriptural canon. And it's because it bends over backwards to try and make sure you know what it's talking about and how it applies to you. Amen. Um, if you're okay, I had one more thought. And just like Amberly has her little segment of her favorite talk of the week, I- I'm going to have a slightly irregular segment of Kendall brings up something about science and the scientific method and relates it to religion and doctrine. So in verse 28 here, this is a scripture mastery verse. Um, 28 and 29. Essentially, when they are learned, they think they are wise, and they hearken not unto the counsel of God, for they set it aside, supposing they know of themselves. And I highlighted supposing they know of themselves, and I just wanted to say real quick that strictly scientifically speaking, I will admit it would be rather difficult to prove the existence of God under a strict scientific method short of having, you know, a Joseph Smith-esque first vision type experience that was repeatable by multiple parties. But it is demonstrably impossible to scientifically disprove the existence of God, because you would have to be able to observe every point in the universe simultaneously in order to say for sure he does not exist. Just an interesting little thought experiment. Frankly, I think this is exactly the way God intends it. It forces each of us to follow God's experiments that he's laid out to see if he really exists and if he is who he says he is. And God accepts the burden of proof for the results of those experiments. So just my little science-y thought of the day. Um, And then just to, I don't know, I, I feel bad ending it off before we get even into verse 10 or into chapter 10, because I like chapter 10 too. And I like the whole rest of chapter nine, but I'm thinking we're we're needing to wrap up here. Read it so. yourselves. It's good stuff. <laughs> Amen. My last little highlight is in verse 39 of chapter 9. Remember, to be carnally minded is death, and to be spiritually minded is life eternal. Think celestial. Oh, that too. I was also going to say that spiritually minded is life eternal if you take all of the first letters. Spell smile. Okay, so. hey, that's pretty neat. <laughs> <laughs> So there's your fun juxtaposition to Kendall's science corner is just remember to smile. (laughs) It's all good. A lot of angles you can come at it from. For sure. Well, thanks for sticking around for so long with us and for bearing with us as we cut off a little bit early in the reading for this week. But like Kendall said, read it for yourself because it really was a very good reading this week and like I said towards the beginning, the vibes of <laughs> of the scriptures are just so good. So yeah, we encourage you to do your own personal study with Come Follow Me and the Book of Mormon. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you want to rate and follow us, that would be super awesome. We would love to have you around for our weekly scripture study. Weekly asterisk. <laughs> We will not have um, more fumbles like last week in the near future. And when we do, we thank you for bearing with us. So uh, if you want to follow us on Instagram for updates, I should have done an update for why we were gone. But again, everything was crazy at our house. So again, thanks for bearing with us. Thanks for listening to the Sunday School Supplement. And we will see you next time. Bye.